good to be here to worship with you. We finally got some fall weather. And it's been nice outside, but it's good to see uh, y'all beginning to, to pack the house as we get ready for the Christmas season. Today, if you were in your growth group, you studied a really, what I was told was a long lesson. Uh, I want to, to uh, let you know, please do not blame Sandra for that. Like my sermons, sometimes my Sunday school lessons I think might get a little extended. And uh, so I'll take uh, the blame for that one today. But as I sat in on, uh, uh, with, with my growth group on that, the lesson today, I was once again reminded of a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. who uh, in his famous I Have a Dream speech said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Now that, that quote speaks directly in, in a lot of ways to where we are in Malachi today. Because God's concern and I'm not talking about from a racial standpoint. I'm talking about a God who is more concerned about the position and condition of your heart than he is about what color your skin is, what language you speak, uh, where you were born, what your background is, what God is concerned about. And what we'll see in today's study in Malachi chapter 3 is God is concerned about how you approach his throne and with what heart you come before him. We're in the sixth of the seven lessons uh, that, from Malachi on seven steps to personal renewal. The first week we, we talked about uh, from, from the, the most positive of the messages or, uh, from Malachi was to remember the love of God. And God encouraged us to remember wherever we are in life that he greatly loves us. He called for a return to wholehearted worship in that second week. And so one of the keys to personal renewal is coming before God and bringing our entire heart, not coming half-hearted before the throne of God, not bringing half measures before God's throne. The third week, we talked about this issue that we have in our culture that he was dealing with was covenant keepers. He's called us to keep our promises. When we come into a covenant before God, whether that is a marriage covenant or a covenant with a church, as he, as he dealt with the people's covenant with him and with their people, he found that God called us out for failing to keep our covenants, for failing to keep our commitments that we made before him. And so if we're going to have personal renewal, we're going to have to become a people who do what we say we're going to do. We keep our covenants before God. And then uh, the fourth week, uh, we talked about praying for revival and understanding that revival and renewal begins with me. And so when we pray and we seek God for renewal to our nation or renewal to our church, we need to understand that what we need to be praying for is God to bring the refiner's fire to my own heart, that I might be purified before God. And then last week, we looked at this call to faithful stewardship of all that God has given us, understanding that everything that we own, every breath that we have is a gift from God and it belongs to him. And so today we approach that sixth characteristic or, or that sixth thing that's necessary from Malachi for personal renewal or revival. And it is simply coming before God with the correct heart. Far too often, we, we come before God with our plan. Lord, this is what I want to do. This is what I believe is right. 
bless it. Or this is what I think about you. And then we use the Bible. It's a term or phrase that I've come to hate greatly. And it came up in our class this morning. We use the Bible to prove what we want to prove. And so we'll, we'll, we'll come up with our preconceived notion and we come to God's word and say, where can I find a verse that proves what I want to say? When we do that, we're coming with a heart of arrogance because we already think we've got it figured out and there's nothing for us to learn. We're coming to get God's word to, to prove what we want to prove. How you come before the, the throne of God, how you approach God is going to be determinative of whether or not God can move in you, of whether or not God can renew you or revive you. And when you, when you are away from God and you feel cold and, 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 and you know that you're missing something, far too often what we do is we figure it out and we decide how we're going to approach God. I also see this among uh, theology theologians or theology students. And, and those of you that have been in Southwestern or you went to Howard Payne like I did or you went to another Baptist college, you have probably seen it in your friends, you've seen it in your classes, and probably, if you're honest, you can look at yourself and you've seen this in your own heart. You came with a preconceived idea. Maybe it was Baptist, maybe it was non-Baptist, maybe it was charismatic, but you came with some preconceived theological guidelines or theological structure and you don't like for those to be disrupted because you already have your theological structure you don't want somebody else undermining those even if it's scripture and so we have to be cautious not to approach God's word with our structure all of all of what I've described here is the difference between approaching the throne of God humbly saying, you know what, Lord, I need you, or approaching the throne of God in arrogance. I've got it figured out. I know where I'm headed. I've got my theological paradigm that I'm going to figure out how to fit God's word into. See, I, 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 as opposed to coming before the throne of God and saying, Lord, here I am. Teach me. So read with me this text. The Lord says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. We have gained by keeping his or what have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day that I'm preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God, one who does not serve God. For look, 
A day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Now, once again, Malachi is a challenging text to work through. This is the, the sixth, really, of six primary oracles in the book of Malachi that begin with this kind of back and forth. When, when God says, your words against me are harsh, you're saying some pretty harsh things against me. And you ask, how have we spoken against you? And then the Lord begins to, he, he points out that you're starting to say things like this. You know what? It's worthless to serve God. I've lived on this earth for however many years. I've been around here 30 years. I've been around here 40 years. I'm starting to see that those who are arrogant are prospering. Those who, who, who do business in, in crooked ways, they're, they're gaining more than I'm gaining. And, and God's not dealing with them. And, and so, why? Is there not a God? Or does God not care? And, and so, these, these folks that he first is interacting with here in verses 13 down through verse 15 are approaching God essentially with the spirits of legalism. It's, it's this idea that, okay, if I do this for you, you have to do this for me. It's, it's a transactional faith that says, uh, well, if, if we're your people, God, and, and we're serving you and we're worshiping you and we're sacrificing for you, don't we deserve whatever? And in fact, they begin to, to take this approach that they've got it all figured out to the extent that they begin to look out there and say, you know what? Even, even those who are wicked have tested God and escaped. Well, the interesting thing about that is remember what God said in the last oracle? If you were here last week or if you heard it or watched it online, God said, hey, trust me and test me. And so these guys are saying, look, uh, some of these people have tested you, and they've tested you in a negative way, and you had not done anything about it. And so there's, there's this sense that we've got it figured out. God's, God's maybe not as powerful as, as we used to think he was, or maybe God's not doing what he said he was going to do. Or, as we talked about last week, some of these folks are operating out of a, out of a spirit of arrogance where they're beginning to say, well, maybe there really isn't a God in the first place. And they've deconstructed their faith. That's the popular term in our culture now. Those who walk away from Christianity are deconstructing their faith. They're, they're, they're stepping back and they're saying, well, this hasn't lined up and this hasn't lined up. And, and so they begin to, to step back from their faith and to, to a point where, interestingly, I was listening to a, a uh, podcast the last couple of days of a guy who was very popular among evangelical Christians who came to a place where he decided he's no longer a Christian. In fact, the podcast is called Kissing uh, Christianity Goodbye. And it was, uh, it's sad to hear that, but what you, what you begin to hear is this idea that, you know what, I've started to look at it and I'm smart enough and I'm, I, I, in my logic, I've decided 
that there is no God. What you've done is you've put human reasoning above God's revelation. And as soon as we put human reasoning above God's revelation, we put ourselves in a position of arrogance that we now are above God. We are above his teaching. We're above his truth. And it comes out of this spirit of, of legalism, of religion. There's got to be this exchange, this set of rules and regulations that, that, that I have to line up to or God has to line up to. And that was one of the, the curious things from this podcast in particular is one of the reasons this, this guy had become very famous with a book that he wrote. He was pastor in a very large church. But what began to get to him was the legalistic stuff that he was teaching that was doing harm to people. And it was the spirit of legalism, of religion that eventually begin to crumble. Well, let me tell you something, folks. Religion will always crumble. Because religion is always man's attempt to reach God. And you can't do it. You can't do enough good deeds. You can't check off enough boxes to measure up and to reach God. That in and of itself has a sense of arrogance about it. That as a man, I can do something to reach God. I can't. Because of my sin, and, and just simply the fact of, of the nature of God, he is so great, he is so awesome, he was so above, he is so other than us. Though we're created in his image, he's the creator. The only hope we have is that God reach us. And in any other, in any sense to say that I can reach up to God carries with it a sense of arrogance. And that's what you see. Four things that I would note in, in those in verses 13 through, through 15 that have this spirit of legalism or religious spirit about them. The first one is a selfish arrogance. In, in fact, you see it, and God calls him out on it later on when he says, for look, the day is coming when all of the arrogant... Are, are, are going to be called wicked. You're going to notice the difference between the arrogant. When these guys step back and they look at their lives and look at lives around them and say, it's useless to worship God. It's useless to serve God. That in and of itself is a sense of selfish arrogance. Why is it that they're saying, I can't worship God or I, it's useless to worship God? It's because God's not given me what I want him to give me. God's not doing for me what I think God should do for me. Well, let me tell you, if you're approaching the throne of the Almighty with that heart that I'm going to do this so you have to do something for me, you're already functioning out of a spirit of religious arrogance. Because God doesn't owe you or me anything. What does he need from me? He's the God of the universe who created it all. What can I do for him that adds to his glory or adds to his character? He doesn't need me. He's God. And if we come to a point where we say, well, I'm going to quit worshiping him because he's not doing A, B, C, or D. For me, we weren't worshiping a God in the first place. We were worshiping ourselves. We were putting ourselves in a, ourselves in a position to be worshiped because what we're saying is, hey, I'm going to come and be good enough so that he'll do this for me. That's not a recognition of a holy God. We're looking for a cosmic candy machine when we do that. 
We can drop the right quarters, push the right buttons, and God's got to give me something. And that's exactly what God says. You've spoken against me because you said it's useless to serve God. You're griping about what you haven't gotten from me. You know, that's the exact opposite of Christian stewardship when we recognize that every single thing that we have, every breath that we take, every bite that we eat, every day that we see the sunrise is a gift from God. He owes me nothing. And when we come saying, because I've worshiped him in a certain way or I've done a certain thing for him, then he should. We're in a position of arrogance. Selfish arrogance. It's about me. It's not about him. Second, there's a cynical skepticism among these people. They, they begin then to look at it and say, well, you know, he's not doing things for these people or he's not treating me right. So, so you know, they, they begin to become cynical about who God is or, or who God claims to be or the claims of God's word. Then you also see among the religious, here in this case, a stark pragmatism. It's about what God does for me. I might worship him as long as he does good things for me. It's a stark pragmatism. Matthew and I had this discussion a while back about, about the, the difference between thanksgiving and worship. In my mind, and I understand that those two get conflated, and they even get conflated in the language of Scripture, but I want to give this to you again. You'll hear it periodically from me, and you'll probably hear it periodically from Matthew. I understand thanksgiving as coming to God and giving him thanks for what he's done, the good things that he's provided, the good things that he's done for me. Worship, I think pure, unadulterated worship, separates us from what he's done. And we basically come before the throne of God because of who he is. If he never did a good thing for me, if he never sent his son to die for me, if he never gave me another breath, if tomorrow I woke up unhealthy, I still should worship him because he's holy and he's majestic and he's the creator and he's above and beyond. He is perfect. So worship should not just be based on a pragmatic view of what God has done for me. Certainly, I'm going to give God thanks for what he's done. Sometimes I fail to do that. Sometimes, like you, I, I take God for granted. And, and, and we need to get away from that and remember to be thankful for every single thing that God has done for us. I love this time of year because some of you are very public on Facebook where every day you post something that you're thankful for. And it's just a reminder to me that this is a season where we ought to pause and give thanks. But we have to get beyond that and not just, be, not, not just come to God because of what he's done for us and what we're thankful for, but come to him and worship simply because he's worth it. Whether he did another thing for me or not. And what you see in the religious, legalistic approach to God is this spirit of pragmatism. We actually see it in evangelical Christianity over the last century. It, it began to explode. And it, it's come and gone over the years. But in the last century, in the, in the name it and claim it theology, where you can gather large crowds and, and large followings by saying, hey, if you say a certain mantra, you do a certain thing, God will do this for you. It's a transactional Christianity that blankets itself in grace, but it still has an underlying idea that, you know, if you give a certain amount of money, God will give you a Cadillac, that kind of thing. And we just, simply, that is not scriptural. I know that you can take some scriptures 
and turn it into that, but you have to deny so much more of God's Word that talks about sacrifice and humbly coming before Him and worshiping Him and following Him for who He is. And then finally, what you, what you see inevitably among the religious who carry the spirit of legalism is a self-righteous judgmentalism. And, and you can unpack that phrase because there's two things there. There's a self-righteousness in it that says, I'm the one who knows the rules. And, and it's my tribe, my church, that's better than all the rest of the churches. Okay, it, it, It's my group or my, uh, my race or whatever it happens to be. It's, it's those that I'm connected with that, that know better, that are smarter, that, that, that are whatever. And there's a self-righteousness in that. Religion always leads to some form of self-righteousness. Because the goal of religion is for me to do enough good things that I can measure up to God. That I can become righteous and then God has to, you know, God then will have to intersect with my righteousness. Hey, I've told you all this before, and, and part of it was the Baptist church that I was kind of raised in, the, the Baptist world. You know, we had the little envelope when I was a kid when you go to Sunday school that you got graded on. If you brought your Bible, I think you got 20%, and if you came, if you're going to worship, you got 30%. There was a little checklist, and then you write down, you write down your score. And as long as you brought your Bible, and you'd prayed, and you had, you went to worship, and you went to Sunday school, and whatever, oh, you had to give. As long as you tithe, as long as you gave, and you check all the boxes, then you scored 100%. Well, that, that ingrained in me this idea that the way to get to God was to do enough good deeds to measure up. And then I got to a point where, uh, for a long time, my dad had bought a boat. And my dad didn't go to church regularly, and so we spent a lot of our weekends fishing. And when mom started taking me back to church, I realized that I was way behind. I had missed way more Sundays than what I had ever gone. And I had in my mind that if I could just go to church enough Sundays the rest of my life that I could tip that balance, 51%, right? I had more good Sundays than I had bad Sundays. This was my thinking as a, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old. If I just went to church more Sundays, then God would see that I was serious and he would have to accept me into his kingdom. It was my idea of how to measure up to what God was expecting of me. Now, some of us have various other ideas. If I'm a good father or if I'm a good husband or if I do enough good deeds for the poor, whatever it happens to be, we, if we have a religious system that is requiring us to measure up to meet God, it's selfish. It's self-righteousness. It's me being good enough. And that's what happens with, with, when we approach God with re religious hearts, with legalistic hearts. It, be, it, it comes about, it becomes me measuring up. The problem with that is, and, and the, the core of the gospel is that not any one of us can measure up. None of us is good enough to come before the throne of God. Even one sin in my life disqualifies me from stepping into the presence of a holy God. And so I cannot stand before God in my righteousness. No matter how hard I try, I'll never measure up. And there's all kinds of images you could use for that. One of my favorite was uh, years ago when, when I was taking evangelism explosion and I was using that, I tried to share the gospel. Uh, 
one of the illustrations we used was imagine if I invited over, you over to my house, maybe you and your wife, or, or, or you come over to my house, and we're going to have a big breakfast together, and we're going to sit down and have a Bible study, and I'm making some omelets for us, and I, I bring out a, a, a little package of eggs, and I break those eggs open, and I get to the, the, about the fifth egg, and I crack it open, and it's rotten. How many of y'all have ever smelled a rotten egg? Now, there's a handful in here. Uh, if you've ever smelled a rotten egg, you can't forget that smell. The, the only thing close to it is going to Yellowstone around the sulfur pits. Uh, you, you, I crack open that rotten egg, and I, it drops down in there with the other five eggs, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And then I get to thinking, you know what? There's five good eggs in there. There's only a bad one egg, uh, one bad egg. I'm just going to go ahead and mix it up. Nobody will ever know, will they? How many rotten eggs does it take to spoil the batch? One. God's word says that because I have sinned against God, I'm a sinner, and I cannot stand before a holy God. So no matter how righteous I am, transactional Christianity will never work. No matter how hard I try, I'll never be good enough to require God to accept me. There's nothing I can do about that. And that's, that's the problem that God had with these guys. They, had, they, they, were, they were calling God out. And with that self-righteousness, of course, comes judgmentalism. And, and, and I see this, and, and this is where, kind of in my illustration or the, the beginning part of the sermon, this is what I see oftentimes of Theology students, when they begin to dig into theology, and, and let me just pick on a couple of you, especially if you like systematic theologies. Now, I've talked to a few about, of you about this before, because what systematic theology does is it goes ahead and it divides up and says, now we're going to study God, and we're going to study man, and we're going to study sin, and we, we divide it out so we build the system. If you take your systematic theology and you use scripture Hear the phrase there, you use scripture to try to prove what you want to say about a particular theology. You started in the wrong place. You need to start with scripture and say, what does scripture say? And then build theology off of that. But particularly among uh, a systematic theology, we can develop a stark judgmentalism. It's not now just if somebody, uh, you know, isn't, like me or doesn't go to the church I go to, but if they don't have the same theological framework that I have, now I'm going to judge them, and, and I'm better than them. And what religion always does is religion leads us to self-righteous judgmentalism. It's, it comes out of me being good enough, me being smart enough, me figuring enough out, and you're someone else. <laughs> you don't fit in with my group, and, and, and so you're not as uh, as mature of a believer. Maybe you'll get there someday if you'll figure out the system. But that's the spirit of legalism that God calls out. And so ultimately what you have here in the first part of this text is some people who were very religious, Israelites, he called out the priest back in chapter one and two, so he's probably talking about leaders who were trying to get there on their own. They had a legalistic view of God. Then he says, and while those guys were talking over here, while those guys had their own thing going on, at that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord took notice and he listened. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. 
They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession. On the day that I am preparing, I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his sons, on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves and the one who does not serve God. What you have in the second group is a, is a group of people who approach God with great humility. And, and the term that's used here, it's used a couple times in this text, is they fear God. And in, in the Old Testament, most of the time, and in this context certainly, the idea of those who fear God is those who look to God and say, man, he is so much bigger and so much more powerful and so much greater than I am. You know what? In light of his glory, I'm dirty. In light of his power, I am nothing. I'm, I'm weak. My hope for life my hope for breath, my hope for righteousness has to come from him. I'm nothing without him. And, and so they, you have these people who fear the Lord, who, who respect and honor his name. And in the spirit of humility, that's, that's point number one of the four. You have to have a healthy fear of God. However you, you want to understand that word, it doesn't mean to, to understand God as this some big mean daddy who's going to send a lightning bolt and strike you down if you do the wrong thing, but it's a recognition that he is God. And the truth is, I love the picture from Isaiah chapter 6 for this, because when Isaiah has the vision of God seated on his throne, the scripture says he's high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple. And Isaiah, Isaiah gets an image, a picture, a, a vision of God in all of his glory. All Isaiah can do is fall down and say, man, I'm a mess. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Because when we see God in his glory, we see God for who he is, we recognize ourselves for who we are. It's like David in the Psalms when he, when he says, uh, he sees the glory of God and he, he, he proclaims the majesty of God and he says, who is man that you even care about us? Why in the world would such an incredible, awesome, mighty, powerful King of kings and Lord of lords, God of the universe, when we turn our back against him in sin, why would he even care? Couldn't he just blow this place up and start a new one? Yes, he could. But there's something special about the relationship God has with us whom he created in his image and he desires to redeem and he wants to walk with. There's a love relationship that God has with us that I don't want you to miss. And it's not about legalism. It's about his love. And ultimately, the reason that we gather as a church and worship him and serve him is not because we have to, because of some set of rules and regulations. It's because he loved me so much that he sent his son to die on a cross, to shed his blood for me that I could have eternal life. I don't, I don't come and, 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 and serve him out of a spirit of legalism. I come and serve him because he loved me first and it causes me to want to love him back. There's got to be a healthy fear 
as we approach God. There also needs to, to be an openness to listen to God. And it, notice here that God was listening to them. I thought that was cool. God's people who truly feared him were coming together among one another in fellowship, and God listened. He was listening into what was on their hearts, what they were having to say. God desires a relationship with us where we communicate with him. God desires for us to walk in, in that kind of relationship. You have to have a heart. When you come in a spirit of humility, you're willing to, to hear what God has to say to you, right? And, and so when God speaks into my heart and, and he looks into my life and he points out and, a sin, I don't immediately try to make excuse for it. I recognize that he's God. And if he calls that sin, it is sin. We certainly live in a culture that wants to argue, that wants to rationalize away. If God says it's sin, it's sin. And we need to be open to listen. If God declares it to be true, it's true. Third, and, and I love this, they have a respect for his name. Look in verse, uh, the end of verse 16. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They had a healthy respect for his name. How do you approach the name Jesus? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What a beautiful name. What an awesome name. His name is worthy of worship. His name should be respected. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the universe is to be honored and respected. Do you respect God's name? Are you careful with God's name? When God's name is spoken, does it evoke something inside of your spirit? They had a high regard for his name. Now I want you to notice something before we get too far away from this verse because it's gonna lead into the fourth point here. Scripture says there in the middle of verse 16, so God took out a book of remembrance and he wrote down the names of those who were his. Sounds a whole lot like what we see in Revelation. That, that God has the, the, the Lamb's book of life. Those who submitted to Christ, who, whom Christ died for and they gave their lives over to Christ, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God has a book, not that he needs it, and I don't know that it has to be a literal book, but God's taken notes on who are his and who aren't. Now, the third or the fourth subpoint here under the spirit of humility is those who fear him, who come before him and, and, and with respect for his name, who he adopts, they become his children. They become sons of God. Look at verse 17. They will become mine, my own possession. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his sons who serve him. Now, I'll take the next step there. Do your children ever mess up? Yes. Have you ever 
dishonored your parents. Adults, have you ever dishonored your parents? Yeah, you messed up, but you're still theirs. And God says that those who come before me in fear and reverence and respect, believing who I am and accepting what I've done for them, those are mine. They're my kids. They're my sons. They're my daughters. They're my children. And there's coming a day that there, you will know the difference. Right now on this earth, and this is the, the, the last major point. So the, you have the, the, the first Ver, or the first section speaks of those who had the spirit of legalism. The second section, God's dealing with those who have a heart of humility that are willing to come before God. And before, I guess before I leave this point, let me, let me make this because it's so important. No one can ever be brought into the, the kingdom of God. No one can ever become a child of God without coming to him in humility and saying, I can't. If you think you can measure up, if you think you're good enough, if you think you can do enough good deeds, you can't. No one will come into the kingdom of God on their own merit, with their, uh, on their own intelligence. No one is smart enough, no one is good enough, no one is righteous enough to come into the kingdom of God. The only way to become a child of God is to humbly come before him and submit to him and when we get to the gospel of the New Testament that Malachi's looking forward to, and we can now look back at, we understand the only hope we have is to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died and he shed his blood on the cross for me, and that when I profess him as Lord, then I'm brought into the fold of God. That requires humility. We have to be willing and able to say, I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. I need you. And that very simple fact is what prevents, I believe, the majority of people from ever coming to faith in Christ because they don't want to admit, we don't want to admit that we're not good enough. We don't want to admit that we need him. But the truth is we do. So finally, there's a distinction that's coming. There is a day of distinction. We're gonna talk more about this next week from the, another perspective, but from our perspective this week, we go from verse 18 down through verse three of chapter four, and God says that there is a day that's coming that you will see the difference. There was an old story told uh, about a farmer from the Panhandle who wrote Ann Landers, and I looked this up a long time ago, and I've used this illustration a couple times, but wrote to Ann Landers and said, you know what, I have a, my, I've got a, neighbors who are strictly uh, religious. They go to church on Sunday. They won't plow on Sunday. They won't plant on Sunday. And, and, and I have decided that I'm going to work all seven days of the week. And I actually, my crops are just as good or better than their crops. Her simple reply was, God doesn't settle all of his accounts in October. We have this idea that God has to settle his accounts on our timetable. That God's going to deal with the righteous and unrighteous on our timetable. God is going to deal according to his word, and I believe it. He's going to deal with those who are his and those who aren't his. But he's not going to do it on my timetable. He's going to do it on his timetable. And so he tells us here in Malachi, yeah, you guys are sitting back. Oh, I'm going to trip over that mic. You guys are sitting back, and you're saying, oh, look, God's not dealing with them. God's not touching the wicked. God's not doing anything against them. The time's coming. I will, on my timetable, and see, 
if we're religious enough to step back and think that God has to do it on our timetable, that takes us right back to arrogance. It has to be done my way. God is going to deal with his people his way. Why? Because he's God. Those who have refused him, those who have approached him with haughtiness, with arrogance, who have used harsh words against him, he will deal with them. And you see in this text, you're gonna, you'll know a difference in verse 18 between the righteous and the wicked. You'll see a difference between those who truly served God and those who didn't. And let me include in there, there's some who look like they're serving God, but they're really serving themselves. That's what religion is. It's trying to look like I'm serving God, but I'm really serving my own purposes. I'm serving myself. I'm trying to elevate myself. God has not called us to religion. He's called us to walk in a relationship with Christ. He, he desires that we walk in a relationship with him. And if he never does a, a good thing for me again, the question is, if he never blesses me again, will I still walk with him? Because I love him. Because he loved me. You're going to see a difference between the arrogant and the humble, he, he says there in verse 4. Remember the instruction uh, in verse chapter 4, I'm sorry. For look, the day is coming, burning like a fire, when the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. God, is, God makes us direct promise here. Those who have refused him and have approached him with arrogant hearts. And in this context in Malachi, he's talking about, to a large extent, religious arrogance. Religious legalist he's dealing with because he's dealing with Israelite and a lot of times Israelite priests. Those who approached him from that perspective and have not humbled themselves to walk in a relationship with him will be turned to stubble. Those who have feared him, who have respected his name, have humbled themselves before him whom he has adopted as children, they will see on that day an incredible revelation of healing. They'll see the resurrection in New Testament terms. They'll see the dead come to life. They'll see those who were sick never get sick again. They'll see those who were broken never be broken again. They'll see those who were crying never shed a tear again. Those who are his children, who he has brought into his fold, he says, for those of you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise up with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like, jump like calves from the stall. Those who are his the day of the Lord is going to be a great time of healing, life, resurrection, rejoicing. Those who have approached him with arrogant spirits of legalism or those who have turned their backs on him and refused to walk with him will be burned to stubble. There is a day that's coming, a day of distinction. The, the, what is going to make the difference for you or for me? In Malachi... It's essentially this. How do you approach God? Do you approach, do you approach him legalistically on a transactional basis? God, I'll do this for you. You do this for me. God, I'll, I'll try to measure up and be holy enough so you'll let me into heaven. Are you one who comes and you recognize that God's God and you're not? Your only hope is to humble yourself before the cross of Christ. Believe his word is true and he did what he said he did. And put your life in his hands. 
let him make you a son. On one side, you have people that are trying to make themselves sons of God. On the other side, you have a God who says, he's mine. He's mine. He's coming into my family. How you approach God, are you gonna approach him with arrogance, legalistically, religiously, or are you gonna approach him relationally? Look at the love that he poured out for you and humble yourself before him and say, I can't get there. I need you, Jesus. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.